Hi, I'm Lalita Krishnan and you're listening to episode 31 of Heart of Conservation. I bring you stories from the wild that keep us all connected with our natural world. You can listen to Heart of Conservation on several platforms and also read the transcript on my blog, Earthy Matters. So today's episode is about the Sundarbans. I recently made a trip there and have to tell you that I'm so spellbound by the immensity and biodiversity of the world's largest delta that we share with Bangladesh. To be honest, I didn't know these two facts earlier. Almost everything I saw was unique somehow, something I'd never seen before. I knew I had to find an expert to learn more about the Sundarban ecosystem. As luck would have it, I came across an account on uh, social media called One Sundarbans, which belongs to Dr. Radhika Bhargava, my guest here on episode 31. In her own words, Dr. Radhika wears multiple hats as a coastal geographer, geospatial analyst, and a National Geographic Explorer. She's a research fellow at the NES Center for Nature-Based Climate Solutions, working with wetland conservation in Asia. She recently completed her PhD at the National University of Singapore. We will discuss her research some more, but for now, Radhika, welcome and congratulations on your PhD. I feel so privileged to have you share your knowledge and experiences with us. Hi, Lalita. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm so excited um, and I'm so happy that you recently visited the Sundarbans. Uh, so I'm very looking forward to your questions and uh, interacting with you uh, on Sundarbans. Lovely. So let's start. So uh, Radhika, what made you, first of all, focus on the mangroves for your research? And uh, why must we be watching the mangroves to check on the health of our planet? So um, it, I started working on mangroves uh, uh, during my master's, actually. Um, so I was a part of a project where they were looking for someone to do some coding uh, use coding or use computer languages to identify mangroves in Southeast Asia. So you use satellite images and you have to interpret where mangroves are. There were many other forest classes they were interested in studying, but somebody had taken up those classes or they had somebody had taken up those forest areas to study uh, using satellite imagery. Um, they were only left with mangroves and then I joined the lab. Nobody was willing to take up this project because there was a lot of computer coding required and we like coming from ecology, biology or management background. Uh, we were not trained in it. So I saw this gap and even I didn't know any computer programming at that time. So, but then looking at that, there's this desperate need, but nobody's doing it. I was like, yeah, sure, why not? I'll give it a try. So I started learning coding from scratch and then my focus was mangroves. So that's how I learned a lot about mangroves, became so curious that throughout those two years of my master's, which was at University of San Francisco, the focus was environmental management. Uh, I ended up doing all my class projects or side projects related to mangroves and that's how I came across the Sundarbans. So uh, you asked me why must we be watching the mangroves to check on the health of our planet. There are many reasons, especially that mangroves are coastal protectors. 
they uh, protect the sea from the effects of storms and cyclones. Their roots help in purifying water, but especially they store or remove carbon dioxide, which causes global warming. They store it within themselves and keep it there for million and million of years. So they have such characteristics that can tell and uh, about the health of the planet and actually help in improving the health. Wow, that's quite amazing. And I love that uh, part about you learning coding from scratch. I mean, <laughs> look where it's <laughs> taken you. <laughs> that's <Thank> really great. <laughs> Uh, so Radhika, just curious again about uh, your social media handle called One Sundarbans. There must be something to it. There must be a good reason why you called it so. I'm glad you asked this question because initially people thought that maybe I didn't get the handle Sundarban. That's why I went with One Sundarban. Yeah, and I also, I think so. I have had that account for maybe two years or so. Uh, and I only came, I only joined social media because I felt this urge to share about Sundarbans. Uh, no, like when I realized that a storm can come, a cyclone can come in that area, nobody would even know that something's happening. Uh, so I felt that I am at a place where I can share. Uh, so I should take that initiative. Uh, so I only joined to share about Sundarbans. And why one Sundarbans? Because... Sundarbans uh, is across India and Bangladesh. It is one ecosystem. And as a researcher, it really annoyed me initially when I would come across studies or management plans or government records that would just focus on one side, like either India or Bangladesh. So mm -hmm. for me, one Sundarban is Sundarbans is one ecosystem. So hence one Sundarban. But then after I pondered, a bit more about that terminology, I realized that Sundarban is in Hindi, in Bangla, and in many uh, local Indian languages, Sundar is just beautiful, and Ban or one is forest. So just one beautiful forest. So if I branch <laughs> out from Sundarban, it, this name still holds one beautiful forest. So hence it stayed. Right. That's really a beautiful thought and it makes so much sense because you cannot save it in part. It's just half the story then. So excellent. So Radhika, how much ground did you cover during your research and uh, what techniques did you employ to cover this vast area? Right. Uh, so I uh, worked across India and Bangladesh. So Sundarbans, for those who are not familiar, is 10,000 square kilometers just of mangrove forest. It's made up of many small islands. Um, I do not even know the exact count, but uh, adding both India and Bangladesh, it's going to be more than 200 islands. And my, like my initial idea was to capture the ecosystem. So since I use uh, geospatial analysis, which means using satellite maps and satellite data, to understand what's happening on the ground, I was able to understand that from one aspect, right? Because a satellite image can help you cover that vast area. But then when I went into the field, I still intended to go from the easternmost to the westernmost and northernmost to the southernmost islands. So for that, I first um, recorded shorelines 
from on top of a boat. So on a boat, I installed a GoPro camera and then we would go parallel across shorelines and then I would be doing commentary on those videos. Later on, I just converted those videos into multiple images and through the observations in the images and my commentary, I collected some data. Uh, so we covered around 240 kilometers just of observation. The traveling kilometers were much more. Uh, and then I went to about 16 villages to conduct interviews with the community to understand their part of the story of the work I was doing. That's very extensive and uh, you must have learned a lot. That's, that's quite amazing, Radhika. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, if yeah. not for COVID, I had an other few methods I wanted to try out too, which would have uh, made me uh, go into the forest and collect some uh, biophysical measurements within the forest. But because of COVID, I had a shorter amount of time and then PhD scholarship and all restricted me. So mm -hmm. there's still more that I wanted to do. Yeah, but you must have amassed quite a lot of information. That's really great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it took a long time to process it. Uh, I, I think I still would go back to that data set, like although I've written my thesis on it, but there's still so much more to get from it uh, that I hope I get a chance to do that in the future. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, these things never go to waste, <laughs> what you observed and what you've learned and what you've surveyed. You know, even though I have lived by the sea, I never bothered to sort of... Um, familiarize myself with the mangroves. It is only in the Sundarbans that too on a boat that I witness up close the diversity of mangrove species. They're quite different from each other, apart from the fact that they all seem to be thriving in this cocktail of river and sea. So could you talk a little bit about the species of um, mangrove species and how unique they are? You know, the snake roots, the breathing roots, for example, or the way uh, some species propagate themselves with seed balls that float till they find the suitable location. My God, it's it's so fascinating. Uh, uh, this is, I think, uh, the in just a few lines, you actually uh, explained how one come across and become fixated with mangroves. So initially, uh, you lived by the sea. I come from a landlocked place. So I had not even heard the word mangroves. Um, even today when I talk to people about, oh, I'm doing a research on mangroves, uh, they assume that I'm re researching mangoes. You know, that's the word is so unfamiliar. <laughs> well, if somebody is worse than me, that means... I was worse than you because even visiting uh, coastal areas as a kid with my parents, um, I just thought, I, I, it, I never processed that, oh, why are there trees on the beach or why are there trees in the water, especially like in the Bombay, Goa, Gujarat right. side of uh, India. So I also learned about it through books and through research papers until I find, and I actually um, went to the Caribbeans to do some project on coral reefs. So we had a small uh, project where we were snorkeling and looking at mangrove fish nurseries around mangrove roots. So I was like, oh, okay, cool. But then I didn't realize that there's this amazing ecosystem like Sundarbans or Bhitar Kanika in Orisha. 
uh, where like it's sediment rich mangroves where you can't even see what's happening under water so right. i also came to mangroves in a similar way i was like what are these crazy roots a lot of people i have talked to say that mangroves to them look like they are in like some sci-fi movie when they come to sundarbans um so it's mainly because of the roots like you said or uh, mangroves have these crazy kinds of roots especially uh, to adapt to the extreme environment they grow in by extreme environment i mean they grow at the interface of land and water so they are often flooded with salt water although they receive some fresh water from rivers as well uh, they get flooded twice a day during high tide uh they are exposed to extreme waves so if you are exposed so i always try to try when i'm explaining this i like people to imagine that these mangroves are humans or to become mangroves themselves right so if you're standing at such a place or if you have to stay there for so long you would develop some kind of adaptations that help you first stand there steadily that's why the hold of the roots the snake roots or and the prop roots as it's called uh, mm -hmm. that helps them stay ground so there are four to five different kinds of mangrove roots um and these roots basically the first role they play is they help them stay in that silty flooded land and then the second thing assistance in the, especially in the sundarbans or in bhitarkanika where there is a lot of sediment that these mangroves are standing on the second thing they need to do is to be able to breathe but the soil and the water mix is so poor in oxygen content that they have to grow their roots up or their roots have to come from their branches and then go into the ground unlike the other plants who just grow their roots hidden from the ground so their roots that are propping up from the ground or some they, uh, there's a type of roots called pencil roots which are like if you have stuck pencil in the soil they will look like mm. that or buttress root all of these different kinds of roots in addition to giving them stability they also help them get oxygen from the air so many plants get oxygen from the soil directly uh, and through their leaves and through their stems but mangrove roots also get oxygen content from the air to support uh, breathing for the plant so these are some benefits uh, some adaptations that mangroves have to bring in to stand tall in that extreme environment uh, and then later you asked about the propagation of species so how basically how mangroves grow mangrove babies right so again if you are a mangrove uh, and then you have figured out how you're going to stand and breathe in this uh, fragile uh, dynamic ecosystem then the next thing to figure out is how are you going to reproduce so unlike many trees who produce seeds those seeds get propagated by wind or by animals or by water different types mangroves some of the mangrove trees do produce fruits and then within those fruits there are seeds which finally find a ground and grow but it's also common for mangroves certain kind of mangrove species to to um not produce seeds but produce a uh, it's called a mangrove propagule that propagule is just a mangrove baby that's growing on top of a mom 
so you might have come across these sticks right. so green sticks hanging from the tree they are mangrove mm -hmm. propagules they hang from the tree and until they are ready to go uh, until the weather conditions the time of the year the tidal condition etc are good the mom drops them in the water now they are floating in the water but uh, these are not seeds ready to be germinated they are these are germinated plant uh, which functions like an any other plant and then it's floating and floating until it finds the right elevation the right tidal conditions the right uh, slope and the right area to settle in so that stick or a propagule has that much sense to find the right place for its survival once it finds so it's floating horizontally once it finds the right place it becomes vertical and the weight the center of mass changes and it automatically goes into the soil which is just like mind blowing for me so in a way they are like uh, mammals right because in mammals human ba like babies grow within the mom until they are ready to come out uh, so i find equal or like similarity yeah. it sounds like they have an intelligence of their own i mean so much we don't know really and there are things people who study these uh, processes are still finding out uh, that we like these things we know as they have been published but there's so much more to know there's so much uh, uh, unknown when it comes to mangroves thank you so much for that and just it's so exciting you know uh, talking of um, species the animals that exist in the sundarbans also seem to have adapted to this unique uh, environment uh, like we saw the rare mangrove pita the fishing cat we didn't see but i know it's there and the swimming bengal tiger is the only tiger that lives in a mangrove system how how cool is that and so what makes them you know so different uh, what do you know of what can you tell us about them right so um, if we are talking about sundarbans how can we not about the tiger right so the royal bengal tiger is found in many places in india or in the south asian uh, subcontinent however the subspecies um, of the royal bengal tiger i'm not sure if subspecies is still the correct word Sorry. but the uh, evolution of royal bengal tiger uh, that is found in the sundarbans is quite different from the other royal bengal tigers that are found in say central india where i come from Right. and the uh, main difference is in their adaptation to living in the sundarban delta in the mangroves in that uh, flooded ecosystem so just like how i was explaining earlier how mangroves adapted to this uh, soil sediment flooding uh, condition the tigers of the sundarbans have to uh, if you are a tiger you would need sweet water or fresh water as they say to survive right but the tigers of the sundarbans are living in a delta filled with salt water they their houses or their land or their habitat gets flooded twice a day which tigers of central india do not experience they go to a, a fresh water pond within their forest to get water but then they can go back to their caves to chill but there are no 
no such structures which is dry all year round for the tigers of the sundarban and if they have if they want to go from one place to another there's huge rivers and streams in between which they have to traverse so uh tigers and other kinds of cats can swim naturally but the tigers of the sundarbans use swimming as their main means of transportation when uh, their islands get completely flooded because of high tide then they climb tree and they stay on the tree for twice a day during high tide conditions uh, and then hunting for these animals is also very different because now you don't have a grassland to run and catch the deer but mm-hmm. you have to very strategically uh, traverse the silty a uh, quick sand type of quick mud type of a uh, terrain uh, where you can't run a lot because of the roots that i just explained earlier would stop you from running far distances um, and the deer itself so it's just so amazing how the royal bengal tigers of the sundarbans have adapted to live in these conditions however that these extreme conditions lack of habitat these days lack of uh, availability of sweet water ponds um and then extreme pressure other kinds of extreme environmental and anthropogenic pressures are affecting these tigers in a way that now they are more exposed to the local villages uh, where they uh, a lot of human and uh, tiger negative interactions have started to take place there are a lot of theories of why they are also some of these tigers are also man eaters um there are a lot of theories a lot of so these theories that make sense to me are related to the uh, extreme environment and increasing environmental and anthropogenic pressure that's making them encounter humans in a negative aspect right, right, right. Wow. I can't imagine a tiger I mean for that matter all the animals there that need to be uh, on a tree twice a day to you know escape being drowned if they can't swim or my god it, I never would have even thought that far thank you for <laughs> explaining that it's quite a hard life even for a tiger <laughs> I was just thinking what about the tigers sorry no 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 we didn't see any tag and we didn't expect to see they told us uh, like don't expect right. it but we did see uh, paw prints and right. it is very fascinating i have seen uh, scratch marks of tigers on trees you know trees, but over yeah. here we actually saw like scratch marks on the mud and we had such yeah. a forest guide for him to i mean mud looks like mud it's all wet and but he managed to you know point that out right. to us it was quite distinct so that was fascinating yeah coming back to you know the sundarbans um, and the ravages of nature uh, cyclone bulbul in 2019 uh amphan 2020 and um, cyclone yas in uh, jabat in 2021 have all struck and affected these low lying islands so what makes them so defenseless and what are the losses incurred with uh, every cyclonic hit you know to everyone right. so um 
I would say uh, the defenseless word here uh, is something I think I should uh, talk more about because yes and it's yes and no. Uh, mangroves are known to protect land, mm. uh, like inland areas from the impacts of storms and cyclones. So in a way, they are not defenseless. They have those defenses. And even um, the all the cyclones that you named just now, Calcutta was the least impacted, if we are speaking from India's perspective, or Khulna or Dhaka from Bangladesh's perspective, was impacted. But the impact was so small as compared to what it could have been if the Sundarbans wasn't there. So Sundarbans is still right. holding ground, defending inland areas. However, because of ongoing uh, anthropogenic pressures, to name a few, the boat, the sh uh, shipping channel that has been formed within the Sundarbans, which is a protected area, it shouldn't be converted into a water highway mm -hmm. or uh, a coal plant coming into the Sundarbans or na from, the nat uh, from other aspects, uh, the extreme erosion of land, the loss of land, which was the focus of my research, uh, causing mangroves to degrade and get lost is causing them to reduce the amount of defense that they could have provided. Right. And when we are talking about defense, I would also talk about the people. The people of the Sundarbans, I felt that are resilient, uh, especially in terms of how they manage when these cyclones, reoccurring cyclones with the frequency of two to four times a year uh, impact them. Uh, however, with reduced options of livelihood, uh, with reduced uh, preparedness because they, they are managing loss of land and cyclones and lack of livelihood, lack of savings uh, altogether, their resiliency is also getting reduced. So that although yes. they are, the people are not defenseless to start with, the conditions are making them such. So if uh, if you hear, I just made a parallel between the resiliency of the mangroves and the resiliency right. of the people, yet both their resiliencies are getting reduced or impacted. Which, True. on a side note, is the conclusion of my PhD thesis. Nice plug, huh? <laughs> good, good, good. So, uh, yeah, so during my visit uh, to the Sundarbans, in fact, I noticed the embankment to my hotel was the resort was half washed away. And again, I, I was told it is a cyclone, which is a recurring factor there. But is there more to it? A great observation, Lalita. I'm so glad that you didn't buy into just the story that, okay, cyclone comes and destroy these yeah. structures. So to get, give a bit more context to our audience, uh, the soil in the Sundar, uh, the soil or the delta, uh, the set sub sediment in the Sundarbans is silty. It's very clay. So if you want to understand this, uh, the potter's clay the, that the uh, a potter uses to mold things into, it's that kind of clay on which if you put a step, just as a fifty-five kg human, the soil is gonna get compressed and you're gonna slip away. Imagine putting a concrete slab on this silty and soft soil. It's like creating hard lines in a very dynamic system. That concrete is going to eventually collapse. And I'll explain you very quickly how. 
So there's a concrete slab, but underneath it's a soft, silty soil. And then there are waves that are coming in and out throughout the day. So the waves are going to take some of that soil with them or that soil that might be a, a bit more hard during low tide is going to get mixed with water and become soft. So the concrete slab on top is eventually slowly and slowly going to collapse. And then um, it's going to become like the embankment that you just saw during your visit. So when a cyclone comes, all of this just gets exaggerated. But these processes are happening on a daily basis, causing these embankments to fall and collapse. Yet when these embankments fall, another embankment of such poor design is built maybe 200 meters away from the current floor line. And this keeps on repeating to the point, I think the place you stayed, you saw the fifth embankment collapse in the past uh, 40 years or so. So this is something I also worked on during my PhD to understand why these poorly designed embankments are still around and how are they impacting the local people. So what I explained earlier about the reduced preparedness or resiliency of the people, the, that kind of that lack of preparedness, lack of having other options make them rely on these quick yet poor solutions. So the demand also increases for these. So once one thing collapses, yet the second time they want the same thing to be built so that they can get some short-term benefits of prevention of flood or, or some people start living in tents who, who have also lost houses because of all of this, start living around the embankment. So it becomes like a vicious cycle of land loss, poorly designed embankments come in, poorly designed embankments causes more land loss, yet more of these embankments come in and the cycle continues. Never thought of it again. I'm learning so much from you, Radhika. F uh, finally, my last question for you. Could you share a word that was perhaps part of your research and um, or significant to you in some way? Something new for all of us. So the word I want to use, uh, building off of what I just explained about embankments, is a word, word called maladaptations. It's very relevant because in the last IPCC report, it was used to highlight a pressing issue in our fight against climate change. So I'll explain it in pieces. Adaptation means any form of a project idea or implementation that comes in to reduce impacts of anything. But in climate change context, context climate change adaptation is an adaptation such as building a seawall or uh, other things that help you reduce the impact of climate change. So one impact could be flooding, sea level rise, and so on. A maladaptation means when that adaptation that is built to reduce the impact of climate change fails, but not only that it fails, it causes other negative impacts to the local community, or the global community. So when an adaptation fails and causes more negative impacts, it turns into a maladaptation. So this is a word that I realized through the work I have done in the Sundarbans or uh, through my research in the Sundarbans. And I'm hoping that I can contribute more to the uh, growing literature on maladaptation. You've increased our vocabulary. 
Thank you yeah, so yeah. much, uh, Radhika. We've covered a lot and learned a lot from you, and it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much, Lalita. I love talking about Sundarbans and sharing about it from a place where I didn't know. And then I had the privilege to go and learn about it. So I feel that it's my responsibility in a way to uh, share about it in any medium and form I can. So thank you so much for giving me this platform to talk more about Sundarbans and the issues people are face, people and the forest are facing over there. Thank you, Radhika. I feel the same way. I just feel there's so much that we don't know and I want to share and I'm lucky I found you. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. One, one quick thing to add for our listeners. So you mm -hmm. learned a lot about Sundarbans and mangroves. So one takeaway you can do for me and Lalita would be if you can go and tell more people in your social circles about how cool and awesome mangroves are and how amazing Sundarban is. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed episode 31 and listening to Dr. Radhika as much as I did. If you know somebody who's doing incredible work and uh, her, his or her story needs to be shared, do write to me at earthymatters013 at gmail.com. That's E-A-R-T-H-Y-M-A-T-T-E-R-S 013 at gmail.com. Watch out for my next episode. Till then, take care. Bye.